Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. In today's special episode, recorded at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, is interviewed by David Rubenstein, the founder of the Carlyle Group, all from the hollowed conference halls here in Davos, Switzerland. It's a conversation on trends and technology that you won't want to miss. I'll let them get right into it. Alex Karp is the CEO of Palantir, and Palantir is a very interesting, unusual company. We'll go through it, but let's go through your own background, how you came to be the CEO of this very successful company. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in New York. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, which meant I went to the local magnet school at Central. And you went to college where? And I went to Haverford, which is not very far away. And then I went to Stanford Law, and then I went to the University of Frankfurt for a PhD. And after your law school, most people practice law or do something like that. How come you wanted to get a PhD in philosophy? Well, I, I, had, I was very happy in undergrad, at least on the study side. And I, I, I thought I would change the world. And a kind of way to do that might be to be an advocate. And then I got to Stanford. And, and I owe Stanford a lot, but I kind of hated it. And I hated every aspect of law school, but it gave me a lot of time to read philosophy and talk to random people on the campus, including uh, my buddy Peter. And, um, and then I realized this is not something I wanted to do. Uh, and because I kind of conceived of it as, okay, well, I've spent three years doing something I hate. I'll do something I think, thought I would love. And yeah. then I went and got a PhD. And Did you ever take the bar exam? No. No. So three years and you're not a lawyer. Well, okay. you know, I'm, I never was a lawyer. I'm, by the way, I'm proud of that. Although okay. maybe, you know. Okay. So um, to take a, get a PhD in philosophy in, in University of Frankfurt, it helps to speak German. Do you speak German? I do. And how did you happen to learn German? Uh, well, actually, of course, it's a short version. I learned it because I had a very tough girlfriend, but the, the um, very tough. Uh, and, um, uh, and, but the longer version was on my father's side, they were um, from a part of Germany, uh, it's not part Bavaria, Switzerland, uh, West Austria, Liechtenstein for about a thousand years. And um, so, and my grandmother was, her first language was German, didn't teach my dad a lot of German. But, um, you know, if you, I, I kind of think, I think assimilation takes many generations. And so I kind of got okay. to Germany with a, already pre-German vibe. As an example, when I got to Germany, I was like, oh, wow, I don't have to tell someone I love them to go on a date. I don't have to have 50 friends. I can tell people that I don't agree with what they said. It was very, it was, it was very comforting. So a very, very uh, smart uh, German, Albert Einstein, had a hairdo not unlike yours. Uh, <laughs> that By the way, Albert Einstein's family um, uh, was apparently uh, my my family is apparently here, his neighbors, but maybe that was. Maybe uh, that's where you got uh, the idea. No. So, uh, you, do you comb that, or it just goes that way? It just goes that way. Although another funny story is when I was in Germany, I because they think American litigious stuff is so crazy. People ask, well, how do you afford to live here? And honestly, I was really poor, so I wasn't really affording it. And I told my German colleagues that look. I bought the shampoo, it was too strong, and it, I ended up with his hair, and I sued them. 
And then, but the funny thing is everyone in my whole university believed him. Like, no, that's not true. I have this hair naturally. Now, your parents are alive, right? Yes. And do they ever, your mother ever call you and say, comb your hair, or she doesn't do that? Uh, well, yes, my mom calls. Well, first of all, you have to understand, my parents wanted an academic. It's like, you know, there's a saying in, in Silicon Valley, ask for money, get advice, ask for advice, get, for mo get money. And I think my parents were like, ask for a cultured journalist or an academic get a business person. So they're already unhappy. So um, tell us about the beginning of Palantir. Uh, whose idea was it? Uh, it was Peter's idea. Um, Peter, Peter, Thiel. Peter, Peter Thiel, very famous, long-term friend of mine, although much better known for being arguably the best investor in venture in the world, um, a co-founder of Palantir. He called me, um, and I'm very grateful to Peter, because honestly, I think there's exactly one person in the world that would have called uh, me to co-found Palantir, and that was Peter. And uh, Peter's like, hey, I've got this great idea. We're going to take the back end that we used at PayPal to stop cyber criminals, and we're going to turn it into a product, and we're going to sell it to the in intelligence services because obviously they could use the best software in the world. Um, and do you want to co-found this? And, uh, and what year I, was that? That's 20 years ago or something? Yeah, that was rough. That was almost exactly 20 years ago because we co-found We actually then founded it a year later. So and. Did you say I'm not qualified to be the CEO of a company yet? Well, I wasn't being asked to be CEO. Okay. I was asking. To, I was asked to be co-founded. Co-founded. No, you know, I tell people this all the time. When someone gives you a, a really interesting offer that sounds incredibly good, you just say yes. So I didn't say like now I've you know hired thousands of people, and sometimes I feel like they're getting you know a chance to, to change the world, and they're like, well, what am I going to get paid? What are the benefits? And I think you know when Peter asked me to co-found the company, I just said yes. So the yes. Period. At the companies, I, it wasn't like, "What am I getting paid? What's my equity plan? What's it like?" I was like, "Yes, I'm starting." So, period. But the company was designed. And I'm going to think about it. I'm going to ask my ex-girlfriend. Was it yeah. designed to be a software company? No, so we were going to be a software. The, the, the central idea really was there's a methodology. So that basically, uh, PayPal is the margins were thin. It's very hard to stop, adapt, stop adaptive adversaries. Algorithms were slower than the actual adversary. They used visualization to find the adversary. Now, that concept was the concept. We, in, in contact with the client, like I had never been to a clandestine service, we, meaning my other co-founders and I, discovered that idea, while it was necessary, but it was not sufficient, you had to actually focus on the back end. And the back end was integrating data, and then my idea, in all modesty, was to integrate the data with data protection norms. And that so, became the engine that powers a lot of the countries in this room so, on the anti-terrorism side. In Silicon Valley, it's often the case that people who run these technology companies have a technology background or an engineering background. You don't have either. Uh, this is true. However, for reasons I could try to explain, but I've never been able to understand myself, I've been like very, very reliable in picking out the best technical town in the world. Okay. And in fact, one of the ways uh, that, you know, of course in the Valley, no one believed me in the beginning, they would send in random engineers and, and I was, you know, then they would occasionally send in the village idiot. I'm like, you send in the village idiot. And they're like, well, how do you know? And, the, the, but the simplest explanation is technical philosophy involves irrelevant, but very, it's distinctions that are very important to you emotionally. Coding involves very small but important distinctions that are important to the world. And if you have a proclivity, emotional proclivity for managing one, you can manage the other. And then as a second addendum, most, you know, you know this on the side, of course, all your investments are successful, but most investments fail. And one of the big reasons things fail in enterprises, the products are not societally relevant. 
If you build a non-societally relevant product, you're going to have to compete with a pure a company that is really good at sales or already owns distribution. Mostly they own distribution and they're great at sales. So to build a product that can break through, that product has to be so relevant to the society that actually people buy it despite not quite understanding it, despite and an engineer on their own will build a product for other engineers. And that's why that's one of the big reasons almost all enterprise software companies fail. So originally your clients were the US government and the CIA. Our first clients, so we got this investment from Incadel, which has always been controversial. It's a really small investment. Now they're no longer at the DPO, they exited, but it's always been very, you know, if you Google Palantir, you'll see. And if, you, if it's a left-wing newspaper, by the way, I'm progressive, and I think the left is wrong to hate on us sometimes because without Palantir, the far right would have would be in a position of dominance because Palantir single-handedly with the uh, police forces stopped major terror attacks. But in any case, you'll read Palantir, CIA-driven data in German. It's Data Octopus, which is my favorite. Uh, it's like as if we're hovering, and none of which is true. But um, where did the name Pal Palantir come from? Um, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, there's a there's a there's a globe which allows the forces of good to to see what's going on and organize, and that's a Palantir. Okay. And the Palantir plural is Palantiri. Hey, so when you start, started the company, you got some software. It was sold to the to Pentagon and or CIA. It was sold. Yeah, the, the Incutel gave us three pilots, one with uh, the FBI, one with the agency, and one with a more classified part of the DOD. But interestingly, it was that part of the DOD that really got us off the ground because they were struggling with finding out where terrorists were putting improvised explosives. And we, oh. found, we figured that out in our product. The employees who work at companies like Google or Facebook tend to be more left of center than right of center, I think it's fair to say. So, and sometimes, like Google, they say, don't, we don't want to work for the Pentagon. So how do you get employees, and how many of you have, 3,300 now or something? 4,000 if you include right. the people, yeah. All right, 4,000. How do you get employees who say, I want to work for the CIA, I want to do software for uh, the Pentagon? Is that hard to do? By the way, and now it's it's not just American clandestine services, probably the clandestine service, almost every, if you're in a Western country, it's your country as well, whether they tell you that or not, for very important technical reasons. No, look, the fundamental basis of Palantir, both for clients externally and people internally, is, and we're very open about this, is like, we are not everyone's cup of tea. We may not be your cup of tea. By the way, we don't like people who are like, you know, coming in and saying we want to kill terrorists and you know just without data protection. So we to make society work, there are basic functions that have to work. One of which is the reduction of terrorism, pushing back on, in my view, uh, uh, human rights abuses largely done by uh, adversaries to the West. You may not agree with that. And bless you, don't work here. And what you'll find is two-thirds of the people don't want to in the valley don't want to work for your company. However, one third only wants to work for your company. And yeah, we don't get it. By the way, it's an enormously, one of the concerns investors had in the beginning is like, you know, because not everyone at Palantir has a clearance. In the beginning, it was for the US government. Now it's for almost every government, depending on where we are. But, and, and, but that's also helpful because you say, well, you don't want a clearance. Why? And like, yeah, I don't care if someone's smoked pot or they have a relationship to their hamster. As long as, you know, as long as they acknowledge it, we don't care. But if somebody's like, hey, you know, so it, it, it basically is a filter now. And, and by the way, we've been very critical, as you may know, people in this room know, of the Valley. And, and that also helps. Look, if you, I bless your soul if you want to distribute carcinogens with your great intellect in the form of consumer internet. That's your decision. 
And if you want to get wealthy and give your money to philanthropy or not, that's your decision. We want people who want to be on the side of the West, making the West a better, better society, more able to defend themselves, protect data protection. And that's not for everyone. Let's go through that as an example. Uh, what the war in Ukraine is one that your company's been involved with. Can you briefly describe uh, uh, what was described in a Washington Post article recently about what you're doing to help the war in Ukraine? Well, so the genesis was we our product's very well known. We build we have a counter intel product which is called PG, which is very well known. We have a commercial product called Foundries, very well known. We have a set we have a product that is not well known called Meta Constellation. And that product allows you to take use algorithms on large data sets to hone in on adversaries over, say, for example, a whole country. And the integration of data from the infusion of data from satellite, telephones, other sources, classified sources, and then the disambiguation of that so people only see what they are allowed to see on the battlefield is something that took us 15 years to build in various forms. Uh, the Ukrainians, without going into all details, but some of us only, they they, of course, went to the most important services in the world and said, okay, what should we use? And I'm very proud to hear they had one answer, Palantir. And then they, we were asked if we were willing to supply our product at, philanthropically, basically, for free. And I was very in favor of this because our primary mission is, in fact, to set a global standard for the world for behavior. Um, uh, the product then allowed them, according to this article, to do targeting at a, a, with a, like a factor of 20 better, um, which basically, according to, of course, the primary heroes here are the actual heroes of the Ukraine. And they're also, I have to say, one of the caveats is they're very, very technical. The people that have used our product there are world-class engineers, but they were also able to train normal engineers. And in their hands, they were able to change the targeting ratio, which, according to David Ignatius, uh, played a big role in changing the course of the war. Okay, so the, can the U.S. government get the same kind of software? Does, does it have it? Can you say that? Uh, the U.S. government uh, has our software. Okay. And, and uses it uh, very aggressively. Uh, I mean, look, they're, they're, the, the role of the U.S. government and the British government and others is somewhat sensitive. Some of it is in this article from Days and Nations, and it's not. But I, it would be remiss not to mention that... Uh, these governments have played an enormous, effective, uh, and crucial role, not just with our software, but also with our software. So where do you want to take the company in the future? You already built a company that's pretty large, pretty successful. What is your future direction? <laughs> well, on the government side, um, a some of this is not directly Palantir related, but we in America, Western countries, we should learn also from the Ukrainians what actually worked on the battlefield. You know, I'm very in favor of a robust posture in America. We should look what percentage of our budget is being spent on things that actually turn the tide. So not all that's going to go to me or but but we like we need to invest where where the West has an advantage. Now, what do we want to do as a company? Of course, we are going to grow and continue to grow that suite of products. Uh, of course, at this point, a lot of our growth is commercial. So uh, without going to Q4 results, U.S. the U.S., as taking a real liking to our commercial product. Um, growing that part of our business is obviously important, but the fundamental, the, my fundamental view of what Palantir should be is a, an instrument, a technical digital software instrument, which is again, what we I think are the best at in America, that, that strengthens institutions, both commercial and economic and political in Western countries. So today uh, your company is based in what city? Denver. 
But you, as the CEO, live in? I live in the backwoods in a, basically a shack in New Hampshire. And the reason that's so convenient well, and helpful it, to the company is? Um, well, I'm, I mean, you wouldn't know it on TV, but I'm an extreme introvert. Uh, and so I hide out. But I, but I travel. I'm back to traveling 250 days a year. And so I travel from office to office to office to office, uh, tricking Palantirians, thinking I'm meeting with clients when, in fact, I'm meeting with the most important client, them. <laughs> what are you building? Why are you building it? What's working? What's not? What, how's our senior leadership failing you today? Please tell me how we're failing you today. How did we fail you even worse than you thought today? So uh, you're also a pretty accomplished um, skier, right? Cross-country skier. So that helps being in New Hampshire? Um, yes, but it's really, the, I'm a very accomplished introvert. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in New Hampshire, I have no neighbors. I, I barely talk. I go into my little introverted cave. I come up with lots of ideas. I mean, a lot of, look, I, we say... Our clients know, sometimes who don't believe us. We build these products five years before anyone believes they're real. A lot of the inspiration for building those products comes from uh, when I'm cross-country skiing. I, I, I think I'm the most accomplished Tai Chi practitioner in the Western business world. I do that. I walk around, I bounce my head into a log and think, oh, wow, we need a product that, you know, or so-and-so is really good. And then, you know, a lot of it's also like, you know, it, when you decide a product needs to be built or somebody like, who, like a Palantir or a Sham says, hey, this is a really interesting product idea. And uh, it's like, then you have to decide, well, who's going to build it? Like, this is the, like a lot of the biggest decisions at Palantir come down to, you know, okay, for example, found the Foundry product, which is, you know, I don't know, it's it, it, without going to Q4, it's been, been like growing like a weed in the West, a uh, commercial product. You know, I remember someone came to me with the basic architecture of it, and we took a person who was uh, on our, by far our biggest client, it was probably worth probably 30% of our revenue, took off the most important engineer and put that engineer on this product that no one believed would work. <coughs> And that's how we ended with, so like figuring out who does what under what conditions. And then there's a productization phase. So we often build a product, then we, it's beta, it's in the market means we still have to hold it up. Then a whole different team has to get it into productization phase. And all those decisions have to be made on the ground, on the factory floor, basically. It's like cutting leather, but to except do, for the to leather do all this, uh, Don't you need to have the ultimate security clearances? To work at Palantir? Well, for you, personally, you have to review these Actually, software. one of the best decisions I ever made was not getting a clearance. And I'll tell you, it's a really good decision because if I was cleared to know a lot of stuff I know, I couldn't sit on the stage. Okay. Um, <laughs> you don't keep uh, secure documents on your oh, desk. No. Okay. I'm not, I, I shouldn't make, I shouldn't make, no, no, I'm not planning an office. I'm not ready to run for office. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty good joke. You guys are too polite to laugh. I would think that, uh, Companies that would do what you do, some of them I would think might be based in Israel. They're pretty good at these kind of things. Is that some of your major competitors are? Um, well, again, companies? I don't want to go into who uses our. We look. We proudly have an office in Tel Aviv. Uh, um, we have an office there because uh, Israel knows our product very well. Um, we uh, are proudly part of that ecosystem. I think the great com the great companies in military technology are going to be in Silicon Valley. Uh, the Ukraine and Israel. Um, what we've actually found interestingly, without going into who uses our product in Israel and who doesn't, um, the more technically accomplished a, a, a future client is, the quicker they buy our product. I, it's kind of very counterintuitive. The, the clients, partners now, who'd be more able to build our product, 
appreciate how difficult it is to build it so and when, buy it. When you sell your product to company or government agency A, is it a thing where they have to keep getting it updated or you just sell it and they use it however they want or you have to help them use it and then you update it every so often? It's a great question. Um, so there's a substrate of our product. So let's just say clandestine agency 204, they'll get, say they buy Foundry and then they buy PG. They'll get a core substrate of the product. If they're sophisticated technically, and many of them are, we'll teach them how to build on top of the product. So a very sophisticated client using our product will build their own software on top of our product because they, they understand there are certain things that would take decades to build. They don't want to build them. And then they'll build their own things on top of it. We, on our end, deliver new features so let's just say, for example, in the Ukraine war, we've learned a lot about what you would need to fight in Europe, which, by the way, no one understood until now. It's a complete fighting in the desert, fighting in Europe, fighting against Russia, fighting against, you know, uh, smaller, less effective, more terrorist organizations, completely different thing. We'll then build features that we will. Obviously, that's one of the reasons we only ship these to allies that will then get shipped across, say, the NATO structure. But but, for example, sophisticated partners and clients like the Ukrainians and maybe ones you've mentioned, um, will also build things on their own. And those things will be built on top or next to our product. And they own those things completely. And that's why it ends up being kind of good for both sides. A lot of CEOs of technology companies obsess over their share price. And the last year or so, share prices in tech companies have come down. Are you obsessed with your share price or you don't care that much? I guess I'm supposed to say I you do I, care. I, I do. Well, I look, I care You're one because- one of the biggest shareholders, aren't you? Yeah. Well, look, the, the, the answer that like, I care because the people who work at Ballinger Care, I do actually care about our shareholders. I actually especially care about the retail shareholders, the small shareholders. Um, but I've been at this 20 years. I, I know that like, you know, when we DPO'd with 700, I think, and 40 million in revenue, and during that, roughly in that phase next year, we ended up with $100 billion valuations. Like, and I, as I recently said, I didn't think, luckily I come from a family where I'm at the small table because I'm not an academic. I never thought I was at, at that good at 45. I don't think I'm that bad at six. I know how well the company's doing. It's funny, as someone who's been somewhat skeptical of the free market in many ways as a progressive and believes that we need to ameliorate the, the free market by having world-class education and helping people who've been underprivileged. I, medium long-term, I have enormous faith in our clients, in this case, our shareholders, to figure out if it's working or not. I know we built the product. I built our company as a product that will do very well under these conditions. So I'm obsessed about our company. Do I obsess about the share price every day? No, of course not. So many CEOs these days are being bombarded with uh, needs to worry about uh, DEI, uh, ESG, and so forth. Is this something that you focus on that much or you're not a well, our clients use our product. I mean, our, the funny thing is, one of the things people are going to find out, we do very well. Like, one of the reasons that we power European uh, clandestine efforts, Intel anti-terror efforts with, in my view, success is proven by the fact that there have been very few terror attacks, luckily, and therefore the political ramifications are we still are run by kind of bourgeoisie parties and political parties in the middle, is that the Europeans have regulated... Uh, counter Intel to the point where it's nearly impossible to do it and there's only one product that works and works very effectively. That's ours. ESG is a bonanza for us because regulators are requiring tracking of data down to the absolute miniature, most minuscule molecule. And that is very similar. It's isomorphic to counter Intel because, for example, in counter Intel, before you shut down an airport or authorize someone being taken out, you've got to look at every single data set. And so it's, it, that's going to be very good for us precisely because 
Honestly, regulators don't understand how difficult the technical challenge is, and you've got a lot of purveyors of PowerPoints, fake software companies, and moderately useful software that are just going to massively fail against these use cases, and you'll, you're going to buy Palantir. So do you know how to write code? Are you a code writer? Uh, when I co-founded Palantir, I, I, I took the introductory class to writing code at Stanford. Somewhat, we have a Stanford rep here. Don't tell them it was you know, somewhat uh, on the side, but yes, I mean, up to a point. And, but again, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't overestimate my role at Palantir. I wouldn't underestimate it. The bringing societally relevant things like PG ended up dominating counter Intel. Foundry ended up being the crucial product during the pandemic. The Meta Constellation is the crucial war product in the world. These are societally relevant products built years before right. you needed them. There are software engineers who will do that. But I feel in all modesty, the fact that I work well with software engineers, but have never aspired to write code like they do, is a pretty important symbiotic relationship that it's worked. A software company in Israel developed a product which could tap into anybody's cell phone. And it was said by the Israeli government, you can only sell this to certain entities. And if you sold it to somebody else, that begins the law. Do you have that problem where you can sell things? Whoops. Whoops. I guess I have a problem. Maybe we have a hand microphone. Um, I think your mic is still working. Can you hear? Is it still, well, the batteries are out. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, speak like, loudly. Yeah. Um, so, we, can you sell your product to anybody you want to sell to? Um, well, again, it, we there are limitations on certain of our products, but we've never even gotten there. We self-regulate to the point. I mean, this was a huge issue with early investors. They were very unhappy when I started telling them, look, it's not a joke. We're not going to sell to China. We're not going to sell to Russia. We're not going to sell to affiliate countries. We, we are going to, and they're like, well, what about ABC country? And like, yeah, look, you know, without going to every detail, people wondered like, you know, you know there were people inside Palantir who didn't think we should work with certain countries and we decided to, but then there's a long list of countries we have not worked with. Right. And um, in, in your case, uh, the, the average person you hire, is he or she a PhD in in some kind of technology product or, or technology skill? In other words, are they coders? Are they PhDs in, in what the typical uh, person? Look, are we, the, the, the typical person we hire uh, has a college, maybe a master's degree in comp sci computer science. Um, now we'll hire, but I would say 70% of our company uh, is technical, meaning they can write code. Um, but then another 10% it would be technical at any other company. They don't write code the standard we need, but they could do graduate level math. So if you take the graduate level math people plus the people who can write code, it's like historically been 80, 85% of our company. So you're running the company, uh, you like it, uh, you don't intend to do anything else for the foreseeable future, not going to the US government or anything like that? Well, I, I, no, I'm, I don't know if like I partner well with Many governments, and especially U.S. government, maybe partly because no one expects I'm going to ever come be in their role. So I don't, I don't think anyone's expecting me to run for office or, or work. Be so no. Uh, look, you go ups and downs. Currently, I am very motivated. Look, you know when you when you play again, the heroes in the Ukraine are the much more important than us at Palantir. But there's this dialectic, like in Hegel, you master slay. Like they, there's this dialectic where there, you do this and it's hugely motivated, motivating to us and to me. And right now I'm very motivated by what we do. Honestly, I like the success and the impact. And uh, I'm not planning 
to go anywhere on, you know, I don't kind of, I don't know. I mean, I've been around now. I've been doing Palantir longer than most people at Palantir have been alive, but uh, yeah, I'm not planning to really change that. And, until and you're not going to change your lifestyle. You're, you're not married, no kids. You're just going to keep doing what you're doing that way. Right. Well, I'm trying to meet people, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, no, uh, I, I'm not planning to change, okay. but thank you for the shit out. Oh, okay. Uh, I, 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 uh, it's, uh, no, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm very, look, I, you know, I, I, there's always an up and down in life. Currently I'm pretty happy to, and I believe in what we're doing. And I, I, I mean, a lot of people would like me to, you know, make myself more, you know, normal friendly. And I'm trying every day. Okay. I, I have a coach. I don't All know right. if you saw Mike to like be kind of slightly more normal in public and it's not working, but I'm doing my best. You have a barber or no as well? <laughs> no, I, that, that I've rejected. I, okay. I tried that route. It All right. We have time for one question, maybe right here. Can I uh, have a mic? You can have my mic if you give Well, here's a, somebody's coming with another mic. Okay. All right. A simple question, not a statement, just a question. I'm David Kim from Korea. I'm a chair, chairman of uh, Dyson Group, which is the one of the largest energy company in Korea. As a CEO, I've been dealing with many uh, software companies and consulting companies, and I have always been very disappointed, especially because, not only because of the result, but also compared to the price they charge for me. And uh, I Googled and found, tried to find the mission and vision of your company, and frankly speaking, it's too good to be true what they said in Google. Well, let me tell you, since we have limited time, we have a great partners in Korea. You are right to be disappointed by software. Almost all software is either a PowerPoint or something disappointing. Uh, we live from people like you. Okay, so the question I have is, how do you price your service? We, oh, and I'll tell you, we're very expensive. You know why we're very expensive? Because someone like you is greatly skeptical and think it'll be not valuable. And when we show you it's very valuable, we expect you to pay us a lot of money. Okay, right here. Arena. Not cheap. And part of the problem is the people that are selling you their software cheaply are selling you a PowerPoint or a steak dinner or, uh, you know, I'm a fan my, of Korean art and Korean food. They're like great kimchi jjigae and the software sucks. Arena. Scott, David has a perfect shidduk for you. He has a very nice daughter. I'm very happy, by the way, <laughs> to the everyone listening is, to this. I'm not. So, um, and by the on way, a I'm serious a little, note. Yeah. On a serious note, you you complimented Israeli and Ukrainian capabilities. How would you rate Russian and Chinese in that space? Well, Russia and China. This is the thing. We we uh, there's a tendency that's really quite unfortunate to because Russia is massively underperformed to underestimate Russia and and maybe slightly overestimate China, but they're starting from the shock factor. Like they essentially have invested 65 billion in hardware every year. And the Russians are among the best technical experts in the world, most creative technical experts, best mathematicians and broadly speaking in the world. Uh, and now it's like, they're like, holy, we're investing in the wrong thing. Now Russia and to some extent China are gonna start investing in the right thing. And that's why we in the West need to really be focused on Yes, we had this advantage because we've been focusing on these things more than anyone else, and our, we have a tech community that's unlike other countries. But that advantage won't stay around if we don't invest, 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 invest in these kind of capabilities, not just pure hardware capabilities. So if somebody wants to learn more about Palantir, you have a um, little building here somewhere? We have a very fine villa here. You can stop by. 
Okay, and they can stop in and buy your products, right? No, you can stop in, test the products as a skeptic, find out they're, they're transformative and pay us a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> all right, I think we're out of time. So thank you very much, Alex, for a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Alex Clark and David Rubenstein. Thanks so much to them. And thanks so much to you for listening. Find a transcript of this episode, as well as transcripts from my colleagues' podcasts, Radio Davos and the Book Club Podcast, here at wef.ch slash podcasts. And please don't miss my colleague Robin Pomeroy's Daily Davos episodes that he is producing right here from the Congress Hall floor. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with Taz Kelleher as editor and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. From my beautiful podcast booth here in Davos, have a great day.